So if you would, open your Bibles, Acts chapter number 4, beginning in verse number 32. I have, uh, many of you are aware, but I have four young children, four young kids, um, seven, six, and twin four-year-olds. One of the things that they consistently say to me, and this is a daily basis, I hear this phrase, Daddy, look. Right? That's what young kids do. Daddy, look. And it could be anything from, I made this picture. And today, one of my four-year-olds, he was supposed to be getting dressed and getting ready for church, and he comes over to me with a Paw Patrol picture that he had colored in weeks ago that was sitting on my nightstand. And he says, Daddy, look at this coloring picture I drew for you. And I'm like, yeah, buddy, I know. It's on my nightstand. It's been there for two months. <laughs> Get dressed. But you can't be upset with this, right? I mean, you can be what we shouldn't be. Because this is them calling out saying, I want your attention. I want your affirmation. See these things that I am doing because I care about you. And as a kid, we expect those look at me moments, don't we? It's cute for kids. You know who it's less cute for? Adults. <laughs> you ever have an adult come up to you and go, look at me, look at me, look at me. <laughs> you probably say, I'm looking. <laughs> I'm keeping an eye on you, don't worry. <laughs> I'm a little bit unsure about why you want my attention like this. That look at me attitude is the opposite of what we saw when we examined what a church member is just a moment ago, as well as what we see play out here in Acts chapter number 4, beginning in verse number 32. This incredible thing is going on. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. This is uh, what I like to call the God and neighbor church. This is a church that is following God first and foremost, and they're demonstrating that following of God by their love for one another. And so what we're seeing is we're seeing this group is gathering together and everything is had in common. That means this, there's no one that is needy among the church. Why? And this is verse number 34 says this. There wasn't a needy person among them. Why? For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Now understand me as we come into this. This is not an attempt to create some sort of philo um, a political philosophy. Here's what this is. This is a body of believers that are made up of two kinds of people. There are those who have the resources and those who are in need. And as they came in, what we find is that we find these individuals who have needs that are known by the apostles. The people of the body are looking around and saying, hey, we perceive there are things that we have that others are in need of. And so what do they do? Those that have begin to sell what they have because this is an era that liquid capital is not a thing. Um, and so they, all of their monies are tied up in real estate, in lands, or in something physical. And so they sell these things. And what, instead of, here's the thing that I love about this early church, is instead of talking about the things that needed to get done, these individuals took it upon themselves to do it. They took it upon themselves to do it. You see, some of these people, they were called to be the hands of the church. And so what did they do? 
They didn't wait for permission to be the hands of the church. They behaved like the hands of the church. And so they went out and they got busy and they did it. They sold their possessions to meet the needs of the people. Understand this with me, um, especially if this is your church, or if you are a part of another church that's preaching the gospel, you're active there, and you're a guest with us today for one reason or another. Understand this with me. If the church is failing to do something, that's a failure of all of ours. It's not a failure of that person or that person. When we observe and we see needs within the body of Christ, Maybe God allowed you to see that need that no one else saw. You ready for this? So you can meet it. You see, you and I aren't called to be the Holy Spirit for everybody else in the body. We're called to be the members of the body. And so there might be a person or there might be a space that you feel that pull of God and God is just convicting you. Can I tell you that might not be the person across the room from you. It might not be their conviction and their call because God's leading them into something else. So your responsibility and mine is not to be the Holy Spirit for everybody else in the room. It's to follow the Holy Spirit as he moves in our lives. And so what we find is this first century church goes out and the individual members of it begin to say, hey, there are needs we see needs in here, and we might not know all the needs, so what do they do? They say, you know what? I'm compelled to meet some of these needs, and so they go out. They take their resources. They sell it. They bring the funds from it, and they go to the apostles, this, these leaders of this early fledgling church, and they said, hey, we don't know all the needs, but here's this. Can you make sure these needs get met? And so the church begins to meet needs even in its infancy, and I love this. First of all, verse 33, watch this. We skipped over this a minute ago. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. You know what grace is? This is undeserved favor. These were sinners like you and me. These were men and women that had shortcomings and failures. And yet, God poured himself out in their midst, and gave his favor on them. Verse 36, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas. So this is a nickname, and it's actually a nickname that sticks with him. For the rest of the scripture, we only see him referred to as Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. A Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so for whatever reason, this specific transaction is one that's called out by name. And we don't know exactly why, but we see that Barnabas is one that's kind of lifted up as being a model of these early believers. I love that name Barnabas, son of encouragement. Uh, it's not that his father's name was encouragement. It's that this is a quality that he possesses. If someone had to give you a nickname based on the way that you interact with other people, what would your nickname be? What would it be? Son of, hopefully not like son of stupidity or something like that. I see some of you guys looking at spouses. Don't, don't start, please. All right, I don't want that on me. But listen, son of encouragement. What is this guy known for? Encouraging the body of believers. How incredible is that? Could you imagine that? That's the kind of guy. I would want in our church, and I think you would too, right? A son of encouragement. I think we do have many of those, by the way. But man, that's a guy. Barnabas. 
And so what does Barnabas go and do? He says, oh, well, I have this land, and I'm, I can sell it, and I can participate in this. And so he does. Chapter number five takes a turn in the story of the early church. Watch what happens in verse number one. But, that's how you know it's not going to be great, right? We have all these great verses. But, right? Like someone told me once, an apology that ends with but, everything else doesn't matter. So we just hear all these good things and we see, but a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with the wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, quick timeout, quick pause right here. I want you to understand this dichotomy that's being presented. Is there anything inherently wrong with Ananias and Sapphira not giving all of the proceeds of this land to the church? No. No, and Peter's about to point that out. We're going to see it here in a minute. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. We do see that we are called through the Scripture to be generous in our giving to the body and to the work that God is doing. For centuries, Christians have practiced what's called a tithe. It's a giving of the tenth. And this goes all the way back into early Christianity and into even Old Testament Judaism. We find this habit of being generous towards the work of God with a portion of our income and that sharing of the resources. But here we find Ananias and Sapphira, they go and they sell this land. We don't know what portion that they allocate to give to the church. Potentially, they, give, they could have given half of the proceeds to the church, which we would look at and say, wow. They didn't have to do that, right? They didn't have to do that. But I want you to understand really quick, I want to set the stage for what's happening behind the scenes here. Uh, John Piper, he's a retired pastor. He's been in the ministry for, for decades. He says this, two of the effects of believing in Jesus are that the heart is loosened in relationship to things and tightened in its relationship to people. Being a Christian means being changed from the inside out so that you watch this fall in love with people and fall out of love with things. Fall in love with people and out of love with things. That's part of the work that God does in our lives. And so as we examine this, we see men like Barnabas where the stuff matters less and less and less to where he can say, I'm going to sell it and it's, hey, it's yours. Do what you need to with it. Then we find Ananias and Sapphira, this contrast. Because instead of being unconditionally generous, we find that Ananias actually is a look-at-me Christian. And watch, watch what I mean here. As he takes and lays this at the apostles' feet, he brings this money in. A large sum of money, we can assume, just based on the context here, a large sum of money. In verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? To keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Watch what he says, verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Couldn't you have done whatever you wanted with this? Wasn't this your responsibility, your, your right? It was your belonging. Why is it then that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And so Peter confronts Ananias in the middle of this lie. 
He says, why are you lying? Understand this. What's about to happen in Ananias' life is not because he didn't give all. It's because he desired that people would think that he gave all while he kept back a portion for himself. Ananias wanted the perception of godliness more than godliness itself. He wanted the perception of godliness more than he actually wanted to pursue God. It's a dangerous place to be in. It's a dangerous place to be in. Many years ago, uh, when Michael Phelps was kind of at his peak of popularity, if you're not familiar, Michael Phelps, probably the greatest swimmer in human history, just phenomenal athlete, gold medals galore, all kinds of world records. This commercial um, aired that Michael Phelps getting up early in the morning, going through his routine all by himself, very solo commercial. And at the end of it, what it says is this. It says, what you do in the dark, it's seen in the light. Understand this. The scripture says it this way. Humble yourselves in the sight of God, and he will lift you up. You see, we don't have to put on an air of godliness when we're actually godly. It doesn't require a veneer. Because godliness is seen before all. And so what we see is Ananias, he wanted that perception. He wanted people to think he was godly. He wanted what Barnabas had, but the difference is Barnabas actually was godly. And Ananias was not. And so watch what takes place here. Peter says, you have not lied to man, but to God. Verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. See, what we find as we look at this, we might look and say, wow, that's severe. In many ways, it is. We're going to examine that in a moment, though. We're going to push into that. Why? Why would this be something that God would allow to happen in this early church? After an interval, verse 7, of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And so this would be, hey, you sold that land for, and he throws out the number that Ananias had said to him. She says, yes, yes, that was the amount. But Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So what do we find in the middle of this? We don't find like rejoicing over the situation. We find a church now that is saying, okay, there's something real at play here. Something significant is happening. One of uh, potentially the most misunderstood scriptures in all of the Bible um, is the phrase actually we get from the Old Testament, an eye for an eye. How many of you heard an eye for an eye? And this, we take this, we interpret this to say, well, they hit me, so I hit them back. Uh, this idea of retribution. Well, actually, the context that it's introduced in is this. The punishment needs to meet the crime, is how we would say it today. 
That's the idea. And so a small uh, crime would deserve a smaller punishment. Something severe ought to be punished severely. And so this is the concept of an eye for an eye. And so we look at this instance and we say, does that punishment meet the crime? This seems a little bit out of balance. Um, let me give an example here for just a second. How many of you have ever lied? Some of you. Some of you are lying today. I don't want the church to turn into a morgue. Help me. All right. Um, how many of you, so how many of you have lied? If your hand doesn't go up, I can't trust you. Okay. Um, all right. All right. All right. How many of you have ever been killed for lying? Only one of you. Amazing. <laughs> no, right? We say like, no, like, that's not, like, obviously you're here, you're breathing. Uh, no, we, we've done this. We've committed similar sins, and yet here we are, and there they were. So what's the difference here? Understand with me, the sacred nature of the body of Christ. Here in Acts chapter number five, we have an infant church that is multiplying and multiplying rapidly. This church is young, and now we're not sure exactly the amount of time between um, the first Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descends on the believers and the time that we're reading now. Some believe as many as about 9 to 12 months have taken place, but still, this is an infant church, correct? So now what we see here is this infant church is multiplying. And can I tell you that multiplication is the natural course of life. Genesis chapter number two, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so it's normal and natural for all living things to multiply, correct? In your body, the cells multiply. If they didn't, you would have been gone long ago. Uh, we multiply ourselves often in the form of children and the next generations that come behind us. It happens all over the natural world. Multiplication is a good thing, but multiplication, multiplication gone wrong is lethal. What is cancer? Cancer is a multiplication of cells that do not function with the rest of the body. If you have ever, I know we have people in this room that you have battled and fought, and some even that are right now, cancer. And it's scary because of the aggression with which these cells grow and multiply. A normal cell growing and multiplying, that's fine. That's a good thing, in fact. Our body needs that. But when the bad cells begin to multiply, that body becomes infected with a disease. What if the sin of Ananias and Sapphira had multiplied into these new believers? What if this first century church sees the behavior of Ananias and Sapphira and says, oh, well, I guess that's okay. As they find out later of the lies and deception that had taken place in order for them to gain prominence. What happens to this body of believers? Here's what I need you to understand. God protects his people, including from themselves. Doesn't Jesus tell us in the book of Matthew, he says, the wheat and the tares, they're going to grow up together. 
And so there are times within the body of Christ that it's been seen that there are those who would seek to multiply sinful behavior and multiply things that are unbiblical and unscriptural. And we don't look at these things the way, even Peter, Peter didn't take upon himself. He didn't draw a sword to Ananias and Sapphira. He let God handle these things, did he not? But at the same time, we see God intervening to protect the body of believers that he had placed on the earth. You see, this is the first cancer of the early church. And like a surgeon seeking to preserve the health of the patient by removing that cancer from the body, God, through Peter, intervenes and removes the mass. Ananias and Sapphira, they brought sin into the new covenant sanctuary. In the Old Testament, there are times where we're told of the sacrifices. And once a year, the high priest would come into the Holy of Holies, bringing a sacrifice, a sprinkling of blood to put onto the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, this embodiment of God's presence on the earth. And they were told how to bathe. They were told how to repent of their sins. They were told the offerings to. And it was known to them that as they entered into this sanctuary, that any sin any falling short, any, uh, anything like this would be the end for them. And now we find Ananias and Sapphira bringing sin intentionally into the body of Christ. And so what happens? God removes this sin. These two that wanted prominence more than they wanted godliness. You might say, Nate, the Bible tells us that love covers a multitude of sins, and it does. You might look and say, well, Peter doesn't sound very gracious to me. Can I say that's a massive misunderstanding of what grace is? Because grace lovingly and gently confronts for the long-term health. Grace doesn't allow for the manipulation of the saints. And so here we find this husband and wife who agreed together This was no mistake. This was no oversight. This was an intent to deceive the body. And God says, no, no, I can't allow that to happen. And what's the result of it? Well, verse number 11, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And so they're continuing to heal, continuing to do these outward signs, demonstrating the inward work of the Holy Spirit. They were all together in Solomon's portico. It's this area surrounding, this covered area that surrounds the temple courtyard, a place where many would gather to seek shelter from the sun or from the elements. And so they would sit, they would gather in these places, sort of like an outdoor pavilion. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And so this body is existing But we find that those who do not believe in Jesus, they said, that's not for me. (laughs) That's not for me. We like what you're doing, but I can't jump in with that. And more than ever, how do we know that this is only referring to unbelievers? Watch this in verse 14. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women Multitudes are added to the church after this thing. Do you think God knew what he was doing? 
You see, just like going into surgery leaves you with a time that you need to recover, right? But at the end of it, you go into surgery so that you can be healthier when you come out of surgery. And so what is this church? Is this church healthier or unhealthier after God handles his business? Well, it's healthier. It's healthier. You see, those who don't want anything to do with godliness, they say, oh, okay, this is not a place for me to profit. (laughs) I'm staying far away from that one. Yeah, those who are drawn to Christ through the Holy Spirit and the work of the apostles say, I'm in on what's taking place here. And so we find that the church multiplies more than ever before multitudes of men and women. Verse number 15, so that even so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. And so what do we see? We see signs and wonders taking place. We see the body again gathering within the temple. We see others, they're afraid to join. This word join means to be glued together, to be, to be adhered to one another. And we see that there are multitudes of people that say they would rather not be a part of this than to be a disjointed part. We find a holy repulsion taking place among those who are not called to be joined to the body. But yet we find more believers were added than ever before. And that's a number, isn't it? Because if we remember, if we go back to Acts chapter number two, there are about 3,000 added to the church. And after this happens, even more are added than ever before. Incredible. But the growth of the New Testament church didn't come because it was easy. It came because God was working. Understand this with me. When God is working, lives are transformed. When God is working, lives are transformed. You see, when God is working, there are those who once were lost that are now found. Say, Nate, what do you mean by that? Well, there were those who are far from God, those who have no knowledge of Jesus Christ, or those who have rejected Jesus Christ. And yet when God is working in their lives, what happens? That pull towards faith that the Holy Spirit begins to compel them in draws them to believe. We find God working in the middle of their hearts. God working in ways that they don't even understand and can't even articulate themselves. See, maybe you're in here today and you say, Nate, I've never put my faith in Jesus. But today, I just, I feel this compulsion. Can I tell you, this? that's not me. That's the Spirit of God. That's the Spirit of God. Because our hearts don't desire messages like this. Our flesh doesn't want correction like this. But the Spirit of God takes it and ingrains it within us. Moves the message from the ears to the hearts and pulls us towards movement and transformation. So maybe you're in here today and you've never believed in the gospel of Jesus. That word gospel just means this, good news. So you and I are sinners. We fall short of God's glory. We behave like Ananias and Sapphira at times. But yet, God sent his son Jesus. And this Jesus 
never sinned, never fell short, never did wrong. And yet God allowed him, in fact, sent him to die for you and for me. What a miraculous transformation. Because you see, when he saves us, when we put our faith in him, the Bible says old things are passed away, all things are made new. My fellow believers in Jesus Christ, I'm reminded of Romans chapter number 12, verse number two, where it says this, don't be conformed to the world. Don't be made like the image around us. See, Ananias and Sapphira, they lived in this culture that just elevated the godly. And they said, well, if we look godly, people will look to us. And so they bought into what the world was selling. They bought into what the culture was trying to promote within them. And God says, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. You see, we're called to be not conformed. We're called to be transformed. So just like, and in fact, this is where we get the the word metamorphosis, just like that caterpillar enters into a cocoon and over a period of time, it's changed. The DNA is the same, but the thing is totally different. That's what Jesus wants to do in your life. So if you're a believer in Jesus and you say, man, my life is a lot like what it was before I've met Jesus. God wants to change you too. God wants to transform you too. He wants to take that old thing and make it new. And that's how we know that God is working. You want to know if God is working? Our lives being changed. Our people being transformed into the image 